You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hello everyone and welcome to History of the Second World War, episode 132, The Soviet Union, part 2, Stalin Comes to Power. This is your semi-annual reminder that one of the best ways that you can help the podcast is by leaving a review for the podcast on your podcast platform of choice if it supports reviews. It helps spread the word about the podcast and let other people know that you think the podcast is great, because hopefully you think the podcast is great. I would also like to thank Brian, Hunter, Thorsten, Miko, Mike, Dwayne, and Dongledog for choosing to support the podcast by becoming members. You can find out more about becoming a member over at historyofthesecondworldwar.com slash members. Last episode covered the early life and political career of Joseph Stalin, and the first half of this episode will continue that story as Stalin continued to grow in power and eventually became the most powerful man in the Soviet Union. The most important event on that path would be the death of Vladimir Lenin on January 21st, 1924, after a long period of health issues which started in March 1923 when he would suffer a stroke. His death would set up a power struggle for the future of the Soviet Union, with Stalin being one of the key players in that power struggle. The second half of this episode will shift away from political topics and instead focus on the Soviet military during the 1920s. The Civil War years had seen the Red Army rise to a place of particular prominence within the Soviet Union, as winning the Civil War was the focus of all of the Soviet leaders. After the end of the Civil War, this would inevitably change, and there would be a re-evaluation of the army as the Soviet leaders shifted from a period of active warfare to a period of possible warfare with other nations. The threat of war with other nations, both real and imagined, particularly the possibility of an attack from the capitalist nations of Western Europe seeking to overthrow the communist system, would be an important part of interwar decision-making in the Soviet Union. It would be the reason that so many political, economic, and military decisions were made, and it would be a constant refrain within the official propaganda from Stalin and others. In the political arena, it would prompt Stalin and others to react very harshly to the possibility of internal threats to the state particularly in the form of political opposition, which would reduce support for the Communist Party. Stalin was particularly sensitive to this area of concern, as would be shown quite clearly during the purges of the late 1930s. In the realm of economics, it would cause almost an obsession with industrialization and general economic mobilization. The most well-known outcome of this would be the first five-year plan in 1928, and then the subsequent five-year plans that would follow. 
But there would be many smaller impacts of the constant need to push for greater and greater economic targets. For the military, it meant the need to greatly increase its strength to ensure that it could protect the Soviet Union, which would, be, which would cause the Red Army to be the largest and most powerful in the world for much of the interwar period. All of this was in service of ensuring that if a conflict were to begin, the Soviet Union would be as ready as possible for that conflict, and that it would be able to use that conflict to its advantage to maybe dust off some of those worldwide revolution ideas that had died at the gates of Warsaw during the Polish-Soviet War in 1920. At the end of last episode, I mentioned that Lenin was preparing a speech for the 12th Party Congress in March 1923 that would have been a direct challenge to Stalin, criticizing some of his decisions and actions. It's unlikely that Lenin actually wanted Stalin completely removed from the party, and it is far more likely that he just believed that Stalin was gathering too much power and wanted to limit the growth of that power. For better or for worse, Stalin was an important part of the party leadership, and Lenin just wanted to ensure that he did not become too powerful. However, this speech would never be given, because of Lenin's third stroke. After the stroke, Lenin would lose the ability to speak for several months, and while he would begin to recover, he would never be able to re-enter the work of leading the party. The Georgian affair, and the letter that he had written to the Georgian Bolsheviks, would largely be forgotten, as it was mostly just a setup for Lenin's planned actions at the party congress, which never occurred. The power struggle for what would happen after Lenin would begin during the middle of 1923, and only intensify in the months leading up to his death. The succession crisis that this would cause would be a critical part of the future of the Soviet Union, because as long as Lenin was alive, there were limits on how much power any other member of the party could have. Challenging Lenin's power was simply not possible. But with Lenin gone, the jockeying for power among the other party leaders turned into a very high-stakes game, with the stakes only rising in the years that followed. The first major target in this new game was Leon Trotsky. From the time of the Civil War until late 1923, Trotsky had been in control of the Soviet military, a place that he had shown to be, you know, quite skilled at during the Civil War years, famously racing around the Soviet Union in a train to organize and bolster the Red Army at various areas of greatest need. But if war was going to happen in the years that followed 1923, the man who controlled the military would be in a very powerful position, and so it was Trotsky's position as military leader that Stalin would seek to erode away. In September 1923, the Central Committee would place Stalin and Voroshilov, a close collaborator with Stalin, at the head of several military governing bodies, a direct challenge to Trotsky. This would be combined with a change to the organization of the Central Committee and the creation of a seven-member leadership group within that committee. This was an idea put forth by Zinoviev and one that was supported by many of those who were trying to remove Trotsky's power during this period. At this point, the three most powerful members of the party were Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev, all of which were working together to reduce Trotsky's position within the party. This would take some time, as Trotsky was a very popular leader, and well-known throughout Russia. But with Stalin controlling the Secretariat, their ally Bukharin controlling the official state newspaper Pravda, and others in important positions, there was little that Trotsky could do to kind of fight back against what was happening. But as soon as Trotsky's position was eroded, the collaboration between Stalin, Zinoviev, and Kamenev would begin to fade, as Stalin would instead start working against them. In this, he was joined by men like Bukharin, Rykov, and others. 
Over the course of 1925, there would be several disagreements ranging from really specific items like how the agenda of each Politburo meeting would be set to much more sort of wide-ranging topics, such as how the Soviet Union should work within the new economic plan that had been put in place after the Civil War. The Zinoviev and Kemenev faction claimed that the NEP was simply the first step uh, on the way back to capitalism, as it reintroduced various capitalist elements such as rural farm ownership. They could not say that the NEP should be scrapped completely, as it had been put in place with the strong majority of the party leadership and had been strongly supported by Lenin, but they still wanted it to be changed. Stalin and his group would get behind the NEP and resisted any real reforms to its system, and they had the benefit of the fact that there was a gradual recovery of the Soviet economy in the mid-1920s, so there was some resistance to the idea of starting to change things when it appeared that things were getting better. The attack by Zinoviev and Kamenev would come to a head during the 14th Party Congress in December 1925. During this Congress, they would try to attack Stalin and his faction directly, but the overall support of the anti-Stalin coalition was just too weak, and they could not carry the day. The outcome was a move against Zinoviev's source of power, which was his almost complete control of the party in Leningrad. This was done by sending representatives of the Central Committee to Leningrad to ensure that Stalin's hand-picked man, uh, Sergei Kirov, was elected to the position of Leningrad party leader, which he was. Immediately after this happened, Zinoviev's power in Leningrad was dismantled, with party officials loyal to him either removed or sent elsewhere within the Soviet Union to disperse their influence. Zinoviev was also removed from the Politburo, the first of several removals that would occur during 1926, with Kamenev and Trotsky to follow. It would be during this time that the idea that all of those being removed were enemies of the state and had been plotting against the party was brought out again to use against other leaders. During the Civil War, it had been used to accuse the leftist groups like the Mensheviks and the SRs, and now it was being used to settle leadership disputes. By the time that the 15th Party Congress in December 1927 was taking place, it was clear that Stalin and his faction had achieved their goal of gaining complete control of the party and the Soviet Union. Some of the opposition had publicly capitulated, while some like Trotsky would eventually go into exile. At the Congress, Stalin would also make a perfectly calculated move, and he would tender his resignation as general secretary of the party. This resignation was of course rejected, Stalin knew it would be rejected, but the public act of submitting his resignation was important. He wanted to be able to say that he tried to resign and everybody just would not let him. How could you now accuse him of being power hungry after he tried to resign? He tried, he really tried, but he didn't, but he did. And so Stalin was in power, and there was no real threats to him until his death in 1953. Before we move on to military discussions, I will say that this has been a very high-level summary of the events that occurred between the period of 1923 and 1927. There is so much complexity and so many complications that it would be impossible to have, you know, just a few episodes about it. It would take a whole podcast just on those four years of political maneuverings in the Soviet Union. But the most important piece or the outcome of this period was that Stalin was in power, and he had achieved that power largely through outmaneuvering the other Communist Party leaders, combining his position as general secretary with a good sense of timing. Those of the opposition that were not at this point killed or often not even arrested 
would be arrested and then sometimes killed later. And in fact, they would be the primary focus of the early purges of the late 1930s. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Window. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. The rest of this episode will shift focus to the Soviet military during the post-Civil War period. Just like every other military around Europe and the world, the Soviet military leaders would spend a lot of time during the early and mid-1920s trying to determine what a future war might look like based on the lessons of the First World War. For the Red Army, one thing seemed obvious, the importance of industry and economic mobilization, which was a real weakness of the Soviet Union in the early 1920s and had been for the Russian Empire for, I don't know, centuries? During the First World War, it had been very apparent that Russia was not on the same industrial level as the other major powers of Europe, and the events of the revolution and the Civil War had done nothing to help the Soviet economy recover. It had, in fact, damaged it greatly. This challenge would result in the rise of a number of military economists, which would try to determine how best the economy of the Soviet Union could be organized to support the Red Army in a future war. One of these military economists, Peter Terekaigen, would write, quote, Industry is the army of the rear in wartime and should be subject to organization, mobilization, and planned management, just like the army, end quote. While another one, uh, P. Dibinko, writing in Tasks of the Industry for the Defense of the Country, would say, quote, A future war cannot be won by the accumulation of mobilization reserves. The forthcoming bloody struggle with capitalism can only be secured by an industry that operates intensively during the war and which is well prepared to advance for the fast transition to production of arms and ammunition, end quote. The one benefit that these theorists had is that the economy of the Soviet Union was centrally managed which meant that if things needed to be changed and planned and they convinced people that they needed to be changed, they could be. This ability to alter the future economy and its known importance to modern warfare would result in a focus on economic matters in military journals like War and Revolution and War and Technology, two major Red Army publications. The economic focus of the Soviet military would also come into play in official documents written by military leaders. For example, the chief of staff of the Red Army, Mikhail Tukhachevsky, would write in a war plan published in 1926 that the Soviet economy was in no way prepared for a long war, and this problem had to be rectified if the Red Army was to be victorious in a future conflict. Similarly, a note from the Organization Mobilization Directorate, dated June 1926, would have this to say about the state of the Soviet economy in terms of its preparations for war. 
quote, all calculations connected with the mobilization of industry and the supply of its products to the army are built on sand as long as the calculations do not encompass the whole economic system, as long as they are not elements in a unitary economic plan in case of war, end quote. Economic planning was just one piece of the equation, though, and it would be accompanied by more military-focused sort of sets of planning. One example of this would be the book Future War, which would be a 735-page book written by the Red Army's 4th Directorate, the one in charge of military intelligence. This book looked at two likely scenarios for a future conflict, the invasion of the Soviet Union by another nation and the successful communist revolution in another nation with the revolutionaries calling upon the support of the Red Army and the Soviet Union feeling like they had to answer. Because of both of these scenarios, a major focus of the book was on the military readiness and preparations of the nations of Eastern Europe, who were the most likely invaders and also the most likely nations in which the Red Army would need to project power. The exact nations to be studied were important, because there was a major difference in the militaries between Eastern and Western Europe during this time. After the massive demobilizations after the First World War, the Soviet writers could still point to a much greater focus on artillery, aviation, and armored forces among the armies of Britain and France, whereas the armies of Eastern Europe had a much greater percentage of infantry. This force makeup was also almost forced on those nations by their economic and industrial capabilities, and it was largely mirrored by the conditions of the Red Army. Future War advocated for a major change in the force structure of the Red Army, with a massive increase in the number of motorized and armored units to provide greater mobility, in artillery and machine guns to increase firepower, and in aviation assets to improve airborne strike capabilities. The exact number of these items and how many needed to be built was left ambiguous, which was just as well because the factories didn't exist to create them anyway. One of the keys of the Future War book, and the planning done by Tukhachevsky as chief of staff during this period, was that war was probably not likely to happen in the next few years. From a political perspective, and among the public, there was a constant statement uh, that war was just on the horizon, but from a military perspective, a real analysis made this seem unlikely. This meant that much of their real planning activities for the military and for the economy were on a slightly longer time frame with Tukhachevsky just using five years in 1927 as a kind of time horizon that should be worked on. Under this time frame, Tukhachevsky would push hard for more military control of the economy. Tukhachevsky would go one step further in May 1927 and advocate for the creation of some kind of defense organization that would have the authority to prepare the Soviet Union's defense in both military and economic areas. This was based on the idea that if the Red Army was to be successful in a future conflict, the economy, even in peacetime, should be built around the military's needs. To quote Tukhachevsky, quote, This compels us to influence the development of the economy so that bottlenecks which weaken our defense capability disappear during the process of economic restructuring and thus create a favorable economic environment for waging war. End quote. The challenges that the economy would face during wartime were well known, with one Politburo report from May 1927 stating that the Soviet economy was not able to produce the military technology required for a modern military, it was not able to build up adequate mobilization reserves, and it was simply unable to provide the economic output required for the defense of the Soviet Union. The People's Commissar of Defense, Voroshilov, would report in that same year, 1927, that the overall state of the Soviet defense industry was a crisis and that there were far more problems than there were positive things to report. 
The challenges faced by Soviet industry were also not just like big ticket items. We're not just talking about tanks and airplanes here. It was basically everything. For example, the production of gunpowder was estimated to be around 40% of what was needed in a war. Artillery shell production capacity was much lower, with annual production at the time being around 300,000 rounds per year, with over 16 million believed to be required on an annual basis during a war. To try and solve some of these problems, an economic expansion plan would be put in place in 1928, the first five-year plan, which we will discuss in more detail next episode. Along with the overall expansion of industry, a new set of councils and commissions were created to more closely align military and economic planning, with groups like the Council of Labor and Defense being formed, along with new directorates inside the Supreme Council of the Economy and the State Planning Commission being created to focus on military needs. Along with the emphasis placed on the economic conditions within the Soviet Union and the ability of the military to be supported by Soviet industry, the Red Army would also greatly evolve during the 1920s. The first step in this evolution was a massive reduction in the overall size of the army, which ballooned up to 5 million soldiers in 1920, with this number being reduced down to 1.5 million by the end of 1921. The reduction in size would also continue throughout the 1920s, with the goal of keeping the Red Army as small as possible while retaining just enough troops to serve as a well-trained corps for future expansion. This was also the period where the army lost its top place within Soviet society, a position that it had occupied since the start of the Civil War. The men who were demobilized were also faced with a return to civilian life at a time when the Soviet economy was struggling, which often made it hard to find new jobs, a problem that would only be solved with time. This was in no way a unique problem to the Red Army or to the Soviet Union, and this was a problem that many nations faced after the First World War. They were all having similar issues with millions of men being demobilized into economies that would experience contraction after the war, and really only wouldn't begin to recover until the mid-20s. While there was only some things that could be done for all of these veterans that were coming out of the army, by 1924 there was a slight shift in how time within the army was viewed. With more time being spent on recruits in the Red Army or in conscripts in the Red Army, in socialist education for the soldiers. They were, after all, a totally captive audience, and the overall socialist literacy of many of the conscripts brought into the army was quite low, and so this was seen as a, as a chance to change that. Their period in the army provided a time where their socialist education could take place, especially during the second year of service, after most of the basic training was out of the way. These efforts would be successful, at least in terms of education, although not always in how those educated individuals would impact society, especially in rural areas that were a bit less receptive to some of the socialist ideology that soldiers brought back home with them. Another important change would be made in 1925, when the position of political commissars within military units was changed. During the Civil War years, the Red Army had been organized so that there were two commanders, the military commander and the political commissar. This had been done for revolutionary reasons, wanting to ensure that the Red Army did not become an area of resistance to communist leadership. But this also made the organization of the Red Army confusing and cumbersome. A group of reformers led by Mikhail Fruns, uh, the People's Commissar of Military and Naval Affairs, uh, starting in 1925, would begin to change this. Commissars would be demoted to a staff officer level. Uh, this was just one of many changes led by Fruns, uh, with the goal of moving the Red Army into a more organized and professionally led military force. 
For those familiar with military history, or even most modern militaries, the idea of a professional officer corps is a key piece of how most modern militaries work, and how many successful ones in the 20th century also worked. But the concept of professional officers and a professional command structure within the Red Army was an important break from some of the political ideals that had been part of the Bolshevik Revolution and which had still had support among many communist leaders. Initially, the Red Army had been seen as a people's army, rejecting the officer classes of czarist times, and now in 1925, they were being brought back. Although technically the Red Army could claim that these new officers were also from the working class, so they were okay, not like those crusty old czarist officers of the bourgeoisie. But regardless of the political outlook, the new structure would make the Red Army better able to create that kind of core of experienced leaders that would be critical to the wartime expansion of the army. But there were some problems. Efforts to form this strong officer corps would come up against several very harmful events during the 1930s, with the large military purges of the immediate pre-war years being the most well-known. But some of these purges would occur as early as 1930, with it given the name of Operation Vesna. During this purge, thousands of officers and others were arrested, with the accusation that they were plotting for the return of the Tsar, or they were trying to bring back the Whites. There is no real evidence of this actually occurring, but that wasn't necessarily a problem. There was a belief that this plot ran all the way up to Tukhachevsky, but he was able to convince Stalin that he was innocent after a face-to-face meeting. Unfortunately, this would not be the last time for Tukhachevsky in terms of being accused of treasonous activity, and the next time wouldn't end so well. In May 1931, Operation Vesna would end, but it was only the preview of later purges both in scope and impact on the Soviet military. Thank you for listening, and I hope you will join me next episode as we really dive into the first five-year plan, a massive plan for Soviet uh, economic expansion that would not exactly work out as planned.